This is us. These are the characteristics and the qualities of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus came to announce that kingdom. And so he announces it with nine different blessed statements. He says, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. How many of people are probably ready to say amen when he starts talking about blessing? Everybody in that culture understood the blessing of God to be just a few things. They saw the blessing of God as positions to be attained, possessions to be had, or pleasures to be enjoyed. That was, that was the culture of the day. Sounds a lot like our culture, doesn't it? They associated blessings with positions to be had, with pleasures to be enjoyed, or possessions to be attained. And the more of those three things you have, the more blessed you are. And so the people were shocked when Jesus launches in to his first message, talking about what it looks like to be in the kingdom of heaven. And he says, you are blessed when you're poor in spirit. Hold the phone. What? What? I mean, this guy's been doing miracles. He's already started pulling disciples together. The crowd's coming. People are expecting a Messiah to come. The anointed one. The promised one who's going to set up his kingdom. They're excited. I mean, the expectation is at fever pitch. And Jesus gets everybody's attention. And he says, blessed are you when you're poor in spirit. And all the air just deflated out of the balloons right there. Like, party is over. What are you talking about, Jesus? And so I want to talk about a few of these blessed statements that Jesus made. Because he he shocked them. He he flipped their thinking upside down when he said these things. And he he really blew their mind. If you're there in Matthew 5, he really blew their mind when he got to verse 20 in His sermon, because he said these words, he says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to tell you, that was hard to swallow. Because when Jesus said that, the people are looking around and see, they, they lived in a religious system. They lived in a religious kingdom. And in a religious kingdom, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are, are the most spiritual people. They're the most godlike people in the culture. And so Jesus says to him, look, if, if you wanna, if you wanna be in the kingdom of heaven, you're gonna have to do better than that. You're gonna have to surpass the Pharisees and the teachers. Why? Why would he say that? He said it because they're trying to earn their way into God's favor. The Pharisees and the teachers of laws are are trying to get the blessing of God by outward action. They're trying to get the blessing of God by doing things. That's, That's the religious kingdom. Do this, be that. Do this, be that. Do, be, do, be, do, be, do, be, do, be, do, be, do. How many of you heard that song before? And the Pharisees sang it every day. And Jesus comes in and he says, if you want to be in the kingdom, if if this is going to be us, you need to understand. You're not going to get there because of doing things and being things and measuring up to some religious 
system. That's not the way it works. And some people would say, well, what, what's so wrong with, with wanting to follow all the rules? What's so wrong with wanting to do good things and, and be a good person? I would say there's nothing wrong with the actions. The problem was the attitude. The attitude says, I deserve God's favor. The attitude says, I've earned my place in God's kingdom. And Jesus said, you're never going to get there singing that song. Because religion is spelled D-O, do. But Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. It's done. It's done. And so Jesus says, you want to know what it's like to be in this kingdom? You're blessed if you're poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. In other words, what Jesus was saying is, if you believe that you deserve to be in, then you are no better off than the Pharisees and the teachers of law. You are far from the kingdom. And and that's the reason that he says you're blessed if you're poor in spirit. What do you mean by poor in spirit? Well, let me tell you what he didn't mean first. He didn't mean poor spirited. (laughs) There's a lot of Christians like that. You're just poor spirited. Can I just tell you this morning that you were made in the image of God? That God loved you so much, He called you the apple of His eye. And then He verified His affection by sending His own Son, Jesus, to die for you. You have no reason to be poor-spirited today. Amen? I mean, if that wasn't enough, He sent His Holy Spirit to live on the inside of you. Your body is good enough for God to move in. And so nobody ought to be poor-spirited. That's not what He meant. But He said, when you're poor in spirit... He meant that you recognize that when it comes to my relationship with God, there is absolutely nothing that I have that can earn the favor of God. That when I come to God, I come poor in spirit. It's understanding that in the economy of God's mercy, we are poor beggars. And that's where it starts. I'm talking about who we are. I'm not just talking about them. I'm talking about where it starts for you and for me to have a relationship with God. It's not about showing up at church, though we're glad you came. It's not about giving in the offering, though we're glad when you give. It's about coming to Jesus and recognizing that all those things, good as they may be, they merit me nothing. When it comes to entrance into the kingdom of heaven, I am a beggar. I'm poor in spirit. And Jesus says, when you come with that heart, when you come poor in spirit, yours is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is talking about what it looks like to be in the kingdom of heaven. And the first thing is humility. He says, you're blessed if you're Humble, if you humble yourself. The Bible says in James chapter 4 and verse 6, God opposes the proud, but He gives what? Grace. Grace. Some of you were almost willing to get loud for a second there. He, it was so close. You were like... He gives grace to the humble. The humble. The poor in spirit. That's what He's saying. Come to me with... An attitude that recognizes, not like the Pharisees who feel like they've, they've earned something or they're better. Come to me with a spirit that says, God, I could never earn it. I could never earn it. And, and the blessing that we get is this, there in verse 3. The blessing is, yours is the kingdom 
of heaven. It's the kingdom of heaven. Now let me tell you something about these, these blessed statements. As Jesus is describing what it means to be in the kingdom of heaven. As I looked at these, I think that not only are each of them important, but I think the order that they're spoken is is important. I think the way that Jesus said them matters. And, and, and it's important that before we do anything else, we first come to the place where we realize that my righteousness, your righteousness, is like filthy rags, Isaiah said. That all my good works amount to nothing. And this attitude that, that because I'm better than you, God loves me more, or, or I'll have a bigger mansion in heaven, it's as foolish as, as looking at a person and saying, I can jump higher than you, so I'm better than you, when the goal is, who can touch the moon? The best of the best of us are so far from being able to earn the grace of God. We have to quickly come to the place where we realize, in the economy of mercy, I've got nothing. I'm a poor beggar. And that's why the second thing that Jesus says is so important. Look at it with me, verse 4. Right after that, he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now let me just say this, mourning is natural. It's natural. God didn't add tear ducts after the fall. They were a part of the original design. This week, we've had some church family that have been mourning tragedy and loss in their lives. And let me just tell you that mourning is not a lack of faith. Mourning is a part of the healing process. When we mourn, we are accepting the reality of the pain, and then we can begin to work through the pain and learn to adjust and live beyond the sorrow. We gotta get past the place of denial to actually realizing that, that mourning is, is necessary. Mourning is an expression of love. Think about it. It's God's way of, of helping us to release the pressure And the pain that's built up inside of us. And some people would say weeping is weakness. But I want to tell you, Jesus was the strongest man that ever walked the face of this earth. The Bible says he wept. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He wept over Jerusalem. Weeping is not weakness. And I'm going to tell you, if you're grieving this morning, if you're mourning over something, there's an incredible promise here in the Word. And the promise is they will be comforted. God's comfort can reach you right where you're at today. In ancient times, they had a, a tradition that they would, they would do. The mourners would come to funerals and sometimes they were, they were paid mourners. People would come and they would cry at the funerals and And often they would carry these little tear bottles. They were called uh, lacrimatories. They would carry these little tear bottles and and they would use them to collect the tears that they cried for the deceased. And then they would seal the bottle and they would set it inside the tomb to show that people have mourned for this person. David, when he was writing one of the Psalms, he, he borrowed that thought to communicate the heart of God. And he said these words in Psalm 56. He said, you have kept a record of my wanderings. You put my tears in your bottle. Isn't that beautiful? There there is comfort for those who mourn. But, But again, Jesus' point in teaching this 
is not necessarily just to communicate the heart of God. It's to communicate the character of the people in the family of God. And so he says, first of all, we're poor in spirit. I know it, you know it, we all know it. There's nothing we can do that merits salvation. But secondly, the people that are in this kingdom, this is us. We mourn. We mourn. Not a natural mourning, but a spiritual mourning. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians, godly sorrow leads to repentance. And that leads to salvation and it leaves no regrets. But worldly sorrow brings death. There's a healthy spiritual mourning that happens in the people of God. And most of us would attest today that we felt it before. When there was sin in our life, when we've done things that hurt the heart of God, and you knew it, and you, you felt it, it gripped your heart, and you were grieved by your own sin. Some of you, you've been in those services before where you heard the word of God and, and the hand of God was just so heavy on you that you couldn't wait for somebody to give an invitation to come to the altar so you could lay that burden down at the feet of Jesus. You mourned for the sin in your own life. I, I want to tell you this morning that there's a lot of people who have come close to having peace with God. I mean, they've come really close. They've recognized their own inadequacies. And they've heard the call of God and they, they come close, but they never truly mourn for their sins. See, there's three different ways that we deal with sin. The first is regret. The second is remorse. And the third is repentance. Now, all of us have dealt with sin on the first level. You can be bothered in your mind by sin and you regret it. But let me tell you, you don't have to be a Christian to do that. How many of you know there are people waking up right about now with regrets on their mind from last night? You can regret in your mind the things you've done, but you can still be unchanged because of it. Because regret of sin doesn't come with a promise of comfort from God. And sometimes we go beyond regret. Sometimes the issue of our sin, it gets into our heart and it troubles us. And when sin troubles you in your heart over the mistakes that you've made, over the willful decisions you've sinned against God, what we experience then is remorse. We're genuinely remorseful. But can I just tell you today that that can be a dangerous place. Because remorse can, can drive you into self-hatred. And it, Evangelist Ron Rhodes preached it so eloquently two weeks ago of what happened to Judas. Both Judas and, G, uh, and Peter sinned against the Lord. But what happened with Judas is he felt remorseful. But it wasn't a godly sorrow. He didn't let his sorrow lead him to repentance. He internalized it. And the Bible says Judas went out and he hung himself. Remorse can be a powerful motivator, but there's no promise in God's word of God's comfort for those who are remorseful. I want to tell you today, God has a redemptive purpose in your sorrow. I don't apologize if you come to church and feel guilty about your life. Because I'm not up here throwing stones at you. I'm the first in the line of the beggars to say, I haven't got it right either, but by God's grace... This is one beggar telling another beggar how to find bread. So I don't apologize if you feel uncomfortable in your lifestyle when you get into God's presence. That's His love. 
That's His compassion. That's the Holy Spirit leading you and drawing you. He's calling you to repentance. He wants you to mourn because those that mourn are blessed and comforted. Apologies are great. When we feel remorseful, oftentimes we apologize. But there's no comfort for apologies. You got to get into this third facet of dealing with sin, and that's repentance. That's where change really happens. That's when our, our, our awareness of sin goes beyond our regrets of the actions that we've taken. It goes beyond the remorse that we feel, like emotionally. I just, I just want to apologize so I don't feel this way. I don't really plan on changing. I just don't want to feel this way, so I'm going to say I'm sorry. See, that's different than repentance. Repentance means to turn. It means I'm not just saying I'm sorry to get this off my chest so I can go into my week and feel better about myself. Repentance says I'm changing. I'm turning from my sin. Jesus' words to the the woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Everyone was ready to stone her. You remember the story? Jesus' words to her after the crowd cleared was not go and apologize. It was go and sin no more. Repent. Repentance. Let me just say that if you're a child of God, if, if, if this description of the attributes of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven describes your life, then you ought to mourn, but not just for your own sin. If you have the heart of God, you ought to mourn for the sin of others. You ought to be grieved at what goes on in our society. You ought to not be able to turn a blind eye to injustice. You ought to mourn for the things that God's heart mourns over. You know, Jesus, he never had to mourn for his own sins. Because he didn't have any sins. But yet the Bible says he did mourn. He mourned over Jerusalem. He wept. He said, the people are like sheep without a shepherd. And he mourned. For them. Listen to this verse in Psalm 126, 126, verse 6. This describes the, the family of God. This describes who we are. It says, Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Can I just tell you, leave that verse up there for a minute. It's not the nature of the kingdom of God for you to see the sins of society and just be frustrated and, and turned off by it and close the doors and just say, well, we're just going to have church. We're just going to enjoy the company of the redeemed because that world out there is going to hell and, and I can't handle it. That is not the heart of God. The heart of God is that we would not just mourn our own sin and rejoice on our own salvation, but that we would, like Jesus, weep over the sins of others. Let me just ask you, when's the last time that you went out of the church weeping, not because of what God did in your life, but because of what you want Him to do in somebody else's life? Is anybody hearing me this morning? That we would go out weeping, carrying the seed. That's the, that's the Word of God. We go out weeping, carrying the seed. And then we have this promise. Blessed are those who mourn. They're going to be comforted. 
For some of you, the greatest comfort that God could give you today is not something you need Him to do in your life. The greatest comfort you could receive is to see a loved one walk this aisle and find salvation. That's the comfort you need. So God calls us mourn for the needs of others. Go out weeping with seed in hand and receive the promise that we'll come back with songs of joy carrying in the harvest. You want to hear shouts of joy? Watch mama's son come to the altar. You want to hear shouts of joy? Start seeing prodigals come home. Start seeing drug addicts get delivered. You want the church to get excited in worship? Start seeing people's uh, marriages put back together. Start seeing God redeem lives that were broken and shattered. We all want the shout, but have we got the tears that it takes to make it happen? This is us. We're blessed because we mourn. Then he gives them another statement in Matthew 5. He says, blessed are those, blessed are the meek, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, meekness isn't a word that we really use too often. But I want to tell you, meekness is not weakness. It's not timidity. It's not bashfulness. Aristotle said this. He said, anyone can become angry. That's easy. But to be angry with the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose, and in the right way, that's not easy. In a word, what Aristotle was describing is meekness. Meekness is its not weakness, it's power that is under control. It's power that has been harnessed. There, there was a Greek word that they used that we've translated to be meekness in our Bible, but in the Greek culture, it was a word, it was a common word that was often used to describe many things. One of the ways that the word was used was by doctors. Doctors would use that word for meekness to describe a medicine that could break a fever and soothe pain. It was a medication that they would describe it as as meekness. It would help somebody to, to get sleep or to get rest. Sailors would use that same word, meekness, to describe a gentle breeze that would fill the sails and move the ship. When they would feel that, they'd go, wow, it's meek. Farmers would use it too. Farmers would use the word when they were describing a young colt that needed to be bridled and broken. And they, they, when that animal was harnessed and was now useful for service, they would say, he's meek. He's strong, but he's under control. He's subdued and he's meek. And all three of these definitions that were common in the culture, they all had one thing in common, and that was power. I mean, a medication can, can break a fever and help somebody get a good night's sleep, but you get too much of that medication, it can kill you. It's powerful, but it's got to be harnessed correctly. The same with an animal. I mean, he can tear up the farm real quick. He can do a lot of damage to a lot of people. But once he's controlled, once that animal is broken and he's meek, now all of a sudden he's useful. Same with the wind. I mean, to have the right amount of wind can just fill the sails and and make for a great day of sailing. But we've all seen over the last couple months the damage that can be done in Texas and in Florida and in the Keys when wind is not Harnessed and controlled. It's powerful and it can do a lot of damage. 
That's the picture. That's the word that Jesus gives when he describes what we're like. And Jesus was the ultimate example. The ultimate example of meekness, of strength that is harnessed. The Bible says this about Jesus. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 23, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Isaiah said it like this. Isaiah said, like a lamb led to the slaughter, he was silent. Like a lamb before the shearer, he didn't open his mouth. That's a picture of power. So how do I know that's power? Because do you remember what happened before they started crucifying him? In the garden, they came to arrest him. They all had their swords, they had their torches and their shields. And they come running as a mob and Jesus just says... Who are you looking for? And his words were so powerful. The Bible says they all fell down. That was the power. The Bible says Jesus at any moment could have called down 10,000 legions of angels to just wipe out his enemies and rescue him. But he had meekness. He controlled his strength. And I'm going to tell you today, this is who we are. You have ability too. You have power. You have, you have the opportunity to leverage what God has given you. And you can, you can use it the way the Pharisees did. You can try to claw your way up to whatever you think of the ladder of success looks like in your life. Or you can submit that power to His control. And that's the process that we see Jesus describing in the kingdom of God. He said, you're blessed when you mourn. But you're also blessed when you meek. See, mourning is the attitude of the Christian when we've done something wrong. But meekness is the attitude of the Christian when we've done something right. When, when we know we have the wind at our back. When we know we have the harnessed power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When we know we have the healing power of Jesus. We, have, we haven't done anything wrong. We've done it right. But we know how to walk in that strength. That's meekness. That's ability that God wants to use. And Jesus said, if you're meek, you'll inherit the earth. If you'll learn to control, if you'll learn to submit to my control, everything I give you, I'll give you everything. See, that's the goodness of God. You can't outgive God. The more you give back to God, the more He gives to you. The more you shovel out in obedience, the more He shovels in in goodness. How many of you know His shovel's bigger than yours? So Jesus says, you'll inherit the earth if you'll learn to be meek. Let me, let me give you one more step. One more step down this road of what it looks like to be in the kingdom of God, Jesus says in verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be feel, filled. Now that's a metaphor we can all wrap our minds around. I mean, you might not have really thought too much about meekness before today, but you don't need me to explain hunger and thirst. This, this, is, this is necessity. This is survival stuff right here. I mean, Jesus uses an example of our pursuit of righteousness on the most base and practical level. These are not luxuries. These are necessities. And Jesus is telling people that righteousness in the kingdom of heaven is not a luxury. It's a necessity. This is a necessity. This is not like next level 201 
uh, relationship with Jesus stuff. This is, I just came here for the first time. I don't know anything about serving God, but at this point in the message, I realized that I didn't have anything to offer anyway because I came spiritually bankrupt. And now I realize because the Holy Spirit's moving in this place that I have sin in my life and the Holy Spirit's convicting me of that sin. And I don't know why I never felt this way before, but I'm starting to mourn for my sin. And when we get to that place, all of a sudden, God begins to pour His blessing and His favor and His Spirit upon us. And we recognize His goodness in our lives and we go, wow, He's enabled me. He's equipped me. He's empowered me to do something. And we become meek and we say, God, everything you gave me, it's yours. I give it back to you. Is anybody hearing me today? I give it back to you, God. You can have everything that is mine. And then when we get to that place, Jesus says, now there's a new desire. It didn't used to be there. There's a new desire in your life. You have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Years ago, you tried reading the Bible and it was so stale. Didn't make sense to you. Now, you can't get enough of it. Used to, people had to drag you to church. I mean, it had to be like Christmas or Easter or something, but it doesn't matter if it's the fourth Sunday in October. You know what? I have a hunger for the house of God. I have a thirst for His presence. It's not exceptional. That's normal Christianity. Jesus said, hey, this, this is us. You want to you be a part of the kingdom of God? This is what it looks like. And you're blessed when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the reason you're blessed is because, is because you will be filled. Isn't that good news that if you came hungry today, you're not going to be rejected? That if you're thirsty for God, he's going to say, oh, no, 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 you got you to seek a little longer. You don't, you don't get to the front of the line on your first Sunday. No. He said, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled. I'm going to tell you, that is a desire that God puts in every person. I'm not just talking about the church. God put a desire for his righteousness in every person. He created us with that desire. It's natural instinct. David said it like this, Psalm 42. He said, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. My soul longs for you. Just the same way that a deer instinctively goes to seek out water for a drink. There's something inside the heart of man that seeks God. Now most people wouldn't call it God. But they feel the emptiness and instinctually they're, they're seeking. They might call it money. They might call it popularity. They might call it a relationship. But they're seeking. Everyone instinctively is seeking. And Jesus says when you figure out what that is. You'll be full. You won't be thirsty anymore. That's what Jesus said to the woman at the well. If you knew what I could offer you to drink, you'd ask me to give you a drink and you'd never thirst again. What was he talking about? He was talking about satisfying the longing in our soul. The Bible says that God put eternity in the hearts of men. And so there's something in us that just knows there's more. There's got to be more. There's got to be more. That's why we see so many people that climb the ladder of success, whether it's in business or in, uh, in movies or popularity or fame or sports. They get all the way to the top of the ladder and then we see the front page headline, so-and-so committed suicide. They ended their life. Why? Because they climbed the ladder all the way to the top and they figured out they had it leaned against the wrong building. It's empty. It's empty. But the drive was instilled in them by God. And when we, when we come to the place where we do what the psalmist said, we have tasted 
and seen that the Lord is good. And when we get to that place and we've tasted and seen the Lord is good, then nothing else satisfied. And now we have a genuine hunger for the righteousness of God. We have a genuine hunger for His presence. So what if you're here this morning and you say, okay, well, I don't have a hunger for God's presence. What does that mean? Well, it's pretty easy. It means you're either dead or you're sick. Appetites are very telling. You know, when people start to get sick, one of the first things to go is their, their appetite. They, they, they lose their desire to eat food or their ability to eat food. So when our lives are infected by sin, it's no wonder that we can even be in a place like this and, and just not have an appetite for God. Like I see other people worshiping. I see other people going to the altar and praying. Everybody else seems to be getting some of that. I just, I'm just distracted. I got a thousand things on my mind. I, you know, I don't even think I want to go to church today. Lost your appetite. It's telling of a spiritual sickness in your life. There's something that needs to be remedied in your heart. But what happens when a person regains their health? Regains their health. All of a sudden, the appetite comes back. All of a sudden, they, they, start, to, they start to desire God again. I'm going to tell you, if you're here today and, and you say, I, that's me, I lost my appetite. I just, I mean, I came out of curiosity. I came out of faithfulness. I came because I came last week and I don't know what else to do. But if I'm honest, I don't really have an appetite for the things of God. Here's what you need to do today. You need to go back to the front of the line and come empty-handed and say, God, I'm poor in my spirit. I, re- I recognize that today. God, I, I got nothing. I, I, I got nothing. I'm not going to come and say, God, you know, remember how I did this and you remember how I took care of that? And No, no, no. I, I, got, I got nothing. I'm poor. And you come to God and you acknowledge that and you say, God, I... I'm spiritually broke. And then you begin to mourn. You begin to mourn over the condition of your own soul. Because the Holy Spirit will reveal it to you. And when you recognize what will happen to you is what happened to Isaiah. When he saw the Lord in Isaiah 6, what happened? Immediately, here's the most righteous man in all of Israel. The first thing he does, he falls down on his face and he says, Woe is me! I am a man of unclean lips. And the moment he encountered God, he recognized just how broke he was spiritually and he grieved over his own sin and that's what god will do for you but god doesn't leave us down there in a puddle of our own sorrow god begins to pour affirmation on isaiah he begins to speak to him he reminds him that he's called him isaiah hears the lord saying who's going to go for me who can i send and he says hey god send me send me and he gets back up on his feet and and he's full of the power of god but he's meek He's not out doing it in his own strength. He's meek. God did the same thing with Paul on the road to Damascus. Paul's got all the knowledge. He studied the Torah. He knows what he's doing. He knows where he's going. But he is blind to his own spiritual poverty. And what happens in Acts 9? The Holy Spirit comes. Jesus manifests. And he falls on his face. And he says, who are you, Lord? Jesus says, it's me. Whom you are persecuting. What happens? Paul 
immediately forgets about all the stuff. And he told the Philippians later, all those things that are behind me, I've forgotten. I only fix my eyes on what's ahead. He, he, he depleted his hope in his legalism. And he said, God, I need you. And then God picked him up and he anointed him. And he empowered him by his spirit. And all of a sudden, Paul gets back up on his feet. Now he's meek. And he's got a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. That's what God wants to do in our lives. This is Jesus saying, this, this is what Christianity looks like. This is not exceptional. This is not for a special group. This is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. So we're going to pray here at the end of this service. And, and I just sensed in, in praying for today and praying for you that maybe there's several people here who would just honestly say, God, I feel like I've lost my appetite. I just don't, desi- I don't desire your presence. I don't desire your word. I don't desire righteousness. And maybe you would even say, in fact, there's a lot of unrighteousness in my life that I have been pursuing, that I have been desiring. And God, today, I, I need... I need to come to you again. I need to mourn for my own sin. Not just regret it because I got caught or because there were consequences. Not just feel remorse and apologize so that I can feel better. God, I I want to come today and I want to repent. I want to change my way. I want to turn. If that's you today, every head bowed, every eye closed, we're going to pray. Just before we pray, if you're here and you say, I just sense God speaking to me today about my relationship with Him. If this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like, I don't look like a kingdom citizen right now. But oh God, I want to. God, I want to. I want your blessing on my life. So first I want to ask a question. If you're here today and you say, I'm far from God. I've allowed sin. I've allowed choices. Maybe the excuses of my own good behavior to keep me from coming to Jesus as the only way, the only truth, and the only life. The only way to get to God. But today I know I need Him. And I want to ask Jesus to fill me with His presence and save me. If that's you today, you say, I want Jesus to save my life. Would you be so bold right now as to just raise your hand so I know who I'm praying for? Thank you. Praise God. Anyone else that would join this one and say, Pastor, that's me today. I hear, I hear the word of God calling me. Calling me to repentance. Calling me to empty myself of any false assurances. And to come broken before Him. Alright, for the one that just raised their hand. I'm going to pray for you in just a moment. But I want to give a second challenge right now. To the church listen our appetite spiritually just like just like physically it, it can it can wane sometimes not every day feels like Easter Sunday I get that so I don't say this to guilt anybody I'm not talking about where you feel emotionally but I'm asking you to allow the Holy Spirit to honestly evaluate your relationship with Christ if you're here today and you say you know what I've lost I've lost my hunger I've lost my passion. I've lost my thirst for God. Maybe you've replaced that passion with something else. Everybody's heart longs for something. But if you're here today and you say, my heart hasn't been longing 
for the Lord. I want to challenge you today to respond to Jesus. If that's you, say, that's me, Pastor. I I need God to stir up a hunger in my heart. Right now, would you raise your hand and say, that's me. I need God to give me a fresh hunger for His presence. I need God to stir up my heart. I need God to speak to my life again. Set aside the things that have distracted me. Praise God. Would you stand all over this room? Everyone stand. Everyone stand. At the conclusion of our services, we oftentimes like to just open these altars and invite people to come and to to pray and to seek God. Now, just hear my heart today. Listen to your pastor for a moment. Oftentimes, we only give God this much opportunity. We say, if the sermon hit me square between the eyes like a stone... Well, maybe I'll go to the altar. Can I just appeal to you, church? In these last few moments, we're going to open these altars. You may not have some heavy grievance in your life. You may not have some secret sin that's holding you back. But more than anything today, you may be, you say, you know what? I just need to seek God. I just need to come to the altar and ask God to make me more like Jesus. I want this description to be the description of my life. And if that's you today, I want to tell you, these altars are open. For whatever reason, you may want to come today. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Allow God to touch you and to change your life again. So I'm going to pray a prayer right now. I'm going to pray a blessing over your life. And as I pray that prayer, if you say, I I just need somebody to pray with me. There are men and women that are going to meet you in this altar. Put a hand on your shoulder and speak life over your life. So right now, as we bow our heads one more time to pray, if that's you, you say, I just want to seek God for a few moments. Would you just come? Father, right now, Lord, I just thank you for the incredible declaration that Jesus made over our lives. Thank you, God, for this incredible picture. It's a process. We're not all there yet. We haven't arrived fully. And maybe we never will until we step into eternity. But God, you're moving us. You're moving us towards your heart. You're moving us towards the image of Christ Jesus. And Lord, for those that feel like they've just taken the first step, that today in this house, they raised their hand and said, I realize today that I am spiritually empty. God, thank you for the humility To say, I need Jesus to save me. Thank you, God. I pray for that one that raised their hand. That God, today you would begin to fill them with your presence. Fill them with your spirit. Even as they grieve over their own sin and the condition of their life. God, begin to pour your power into their lives. And teach all of us, God, to begin to walk in meekness. To begin to walk in our God-given authority and influence. To be the people that you've called us to be. God, help us to stir up a desire like never before for more of your presence. A hunger and a thirst for your will and your way in our lives. God, as we leave this place today, I pray that no one exits this building and exits your presence at the same time. God, we carry you into this world for your glory and your honor. Let your kingdom be built in us, in Jesus' name.
Amen and amen. Amen. God bless you today. Have a wonderful afternoon.